In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing in everything that we do. Grant us your peace, O God, and help us, O Lord, to always serve you with purity and righteousness. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, here's as we pray, thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Good evening, everybody. God willing, tonight we're going to have another uh, Q&A session. If you would like to submit any questions uh, for any future session, you can do so at the link on your screen. In the name of the Father, <clears throat> and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. So first question we have is, what does it mean to be a peacemaker in practice? So <clears throat> the idea of being a peacemaker, we can read about this a lot in the scripture. In Romans 12, 18, it says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And also one of the famous Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, when the Lord Christ says in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So I think um, an important uh, distinction here or important point to make is um, in, in the verse in Romans 12, it says, if it is possible as much as depends on you, as much as it depends on you. Oftentimes we're dealing with situations where um, there are other people involved um, in conflicts and so on. And, and, and maybe we want to have peace, but the others do not want to have peace, right? Here, the idea that we might be not in peace with someone Obviously, there's there's some actions and some steps that we can take in order to make peace with others. Um, but there are some things beyond our control. We cannot make peace with someone who wants to make war. Right. So here the emphasis is on um, our actions. What is it that I am doing right in order to make peace? Um, and so what are some practical steps? So a person who wants to make peace is someone who, uh, number one, does not want to instigate conflict. Right. Um, sometimes uh, conflict seems like, uh, you know, it, it's like everywhere now. Like when you, you see in, in the news and social media, just in our society in general, um, you feel like there is no sense of peacemaking anymore. You know, everything, everyone focuses on what I believe is right. Okay. And so anyone who believes opposite to me, um, then essentially I feel like I can go to war against them. I can mock them. I can ridicule them. I can you know, post things against them. I can yell at them. I can, you know, like, like I, I try to embarrass them. You, you know, so there's so many um, instances of this now where, you know, the way that we deal with people that we disagree with, the way we deal with people that um, kind of do things against what we believe should be done. Um, the idea of peacemaking is something that's, you know, maybe foreign and lost nowadays um, in our society, right? Someone who doesn't instigate conflict. Like I might see another person who is doing something um, contrary to what I believe, right? But the question is, is how do I deal with them now? How do I deal with them because they have a different belief than me? And when I say belief, it doesn't have to just be speaking about like religious belief. It could be any kind of belief, like politically, for instance. How do I deal with a person who has a different political belief than I do? Um, you know, do I go and try to instigate conflict? Do I try to rile up people? Do I try to, to, to create dissension and fighting and arguments, right? This is not the work of a peacemaker, right? Um, a peacemaker wants to reconcile. 
a peacemaker wants to say, even though we disagree about something, even though we don't see eye to eye about something, we can still live in harmony. We can still leave, live peaceably. Because what is more important, right, than, than you know, proving who is right in something is to be able to live in peace with other people. Because there will always be people with different opinions. There will always be people that, you know, think in, in different ways. But for us to be able to get along and to function, right, we, we can't be at war with one another. We can't be always fighting one, one another, right? So a peacemaker is someone who does not instigate or promote conflict. Also, a peacemaker is someone who avoids gossiping or portraying people in a negative light, right? Someone who wants to build up people and to build up the reputation of people, not someone who wants to find errors and mistakes and sins and failures and then point them out so that other people will notice and see, right? A peacemaker is someone who wants to cover the sins of another, someone who wants to protect and defend rather than someone who wants to point out flaws and errors and mistakes. So a peacemaker does not speak badly about others, right? And a peacemaker wants to protect, okay, others. A peacemaker is also someone who is quick to forgive, right? Someone who, um, you know, maybe I've been wronged, but instead of me dwelling on the fact that I have been wronged and that now this gives me the right to, to destroy you, it gives me the right to retaliate against you, it gives me the right to do to you what you did to me, it gives me the right to go and to spread, you know, all kinds of hateful language and, and things spreading to everyone in the world, everything that you have done to me, right? Instead, because I want to make peace, I forgive. Making peace does not mean I agree that what you did was right to me. Making peace does not mean that I think that um, I have no reason to be upset by what it is that you have said or done to me. Making peace emphasizes that even though there is conflict and even though I disagree with something that you have done, but being at peace is more important, right? Being at peace is more important. And actually, if you think about it, the person who um, is, let's say, the victim of an insult, right? Um, if they learn to reconcile, if they learn to have peace, if they learn to, to deal with others in, in kindness, right, then they themselves are not carrying this burden of hatred inside of them. And, and they feel like, yes, maybe I have been wrong, but we are, you know, we, 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 we can live together, right? We can live in harmony and peace together. A peacemaker is someone who makes excuses for the mistakes and sins of another person, Right. I'm not so quick to judge when someone makes a mistake or an error. I make excuses for them. Maybe they were having a bad day. Maybe um, the, the way that they were raised never taught them a certain principle. Maybe um, this is there's another explanation that I am not aware of that it could explain why they did or said what it is that they did or said, right? Making excuses for other people. This helps me to have peace, right? Oftentimes, we really don't understand the motivations of people or that we don't understand why something was done. Maybe there's some other explanation, some other reason, right? Uh, a peacemaker is someone who seeks to reconcile with other, uh, uh, seeks to reconcile others who are angry with each other. So let's say I'm a third party and I have two friends and those two friends are fighting about something, right? If I'm a peacemaker, I'm not going to go to one and try to aggravate them against the other. I'm not going to try to play both sides and pretend like, okay, when I talk to one friend, I'm on their side. When I talk to the other friend, I'm on their side. I'm not going to try to, you know, to, to perpetuate this. Um, instead, I'm going to try to diffuse it, 
I'm going to try to talk to one and try to make them see that maybe the other friend, um, you know, again, maybe make excuses for them. Maybe there is another reason. Maybe you should go talk to them. You should go and, and, and discuss this. Don't just be harboring anger and hatred in your heart over it, over it. And I say the same to the other. I try to bring them together instead of trying to split them apart or instead of ignoring it altogether. I'm a peacemaker. I want to bring peace to, to other people, right? So um, just as I have in my own personal relationships, I also want to have peace um, among the other people that I know and, and to bring peace um, to the people around me. Someone who is a peacemaker is flexible, okay, and does not demand their way, right? I'm, 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 I'm okay um, with the will of other people being done over my own will for the sake of peace. Like if I, if I have an opinion, I'm willing that my opinion not, um, not be acted upon for the sake of having peace. Maybe somebody else has another opinion and they get very angry or upset if that opinion is not done okay you know if it is if it is appropriate if there's nothing if there's nothing like you know immoral or sinful about that opinion maybe the right decision for me instead of keep pushing 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 for my opinion to be done maybe i take a step back and say okay you you do it and i and i don't do that with a sense of resentment or bitterness but i do it sincerely because i want there to be peace right of course in everything there is a balance right um, but but someone who is a peacemaker um, is quick to want to defer to others, right, for the sake of peace. Having peace in a family, having peace in an organization, having peace among friends, this is, you know, having peace in a nation, of course. This is something that is very, very important. And even though we might not agree, but we can agree that having peace is good, right? We can agree that having peace is good, but it's up to us to make that happen. If everybody clings to their own opinion and is and is unwilling to defer to anyone else, then there can be no peace, right? Because there's no compromise. There's no there's no putting others above myself. There's no deferring to others. We are always fighting, 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 um, and eventually it it erodes and withers and destroys um, any relationship because every person becomes like an island on their own. There is no other person that's going to have the exact set of beliefs that I have. And if I'm unable to compromise, if I'm unable to live and work uh, and deal with other people who are different than myself, then I will always feel that I am um, kind of at war with others, right? The peacemaker is someone who is able to live peaceably, right? Now, as I said at the beginning, um, maybe others don't want to live peaceably with me, right? And that's something I cannot control. But at least as far as I am able, I will seek to live peaceably um, with others. Number two, which mountain exactly did God appear to uh, Moses on to give him the Ten Commandments? I think it has to be a mountain in the desert of Sinai, since this is geographically where he took the Israelites. Some documents specify it was a mountain in the Arab Peninsula. So there is more than one opinion about this. Um, different people have different opinions as to where Mount Sinai is. So, you know, Mount Sinai is the, is the mountain where Moses received the Ten Commandments. In the Bible, it's also called Mount Horeb. It's, just, it's the same mountain. Um, and so traditionally, uh, you know, the, the, the belief was that Mount Sinai is a mountain in the Sinai Peninsula. And uh, currently there is a monastery. Uh, it's an Eastern Orthodox monastery that is built on the site. It's called St. Catherine Monastery. And it's believed that 
the burning bush uh, is actually there. They built it around the burning bush. I actually went there to this monastery and visited. They have a tree, which they say is the burning bush. Uh, and it's got, uh, you know, so it would be thousands of years old. Um, and it's got like a fence around it. But you can actually go touch it. Um, you know, and I, my, my grandfather actually took one of the leaves from this bush and gave it to me when I was a kid. Um, so there are many who believe that this is Mount Sinai. This is like the traditional location um, of Mount Sinai. Okay. So the, the, if you're familiar with the geography, okay, Mount Sinai is like a triangle. Okay. And it's like a wedge. And, and so on both sides of Mount Sinai, there's the Red Sea on the, on the West side, there is what's called the, the, the Gulf of Suez. Okay. That's what separates, uh, the, the main part of Egypt from Mount Sin from uh, the, the Sinai Peninsula. And then on the east side, there is another gulf, which is called the Gulf of Aqaba. And this gulf separates uh, Mount Sinai from Saudi Arabia. Okay. So the traditional view uh, is that the Israelites were in Egypt and they crossed the Gulf of Suez, which is on the west side of the Sinai Peninsula, into the Sinai Peninsula. Right, and there on the mountain um, in Mount Sinai is where God appeared to Moses, and He received the Ten Commandments. Okay, there's other opinions though. Okay, there's another opinion um, that says that uh, the Mount Sinai is actually in a northern part of the Sinai Peninsula. So the this location uh, of Saint Catherine Monastery and the and, and the traditional view of this being uh, the location of Mount Sinai. This is in the, like the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula. There's another view that on the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula, actually in the southern part of Israel, that there's a mountain there that's called Har Har Kum. And there people believe that, again, the Israelites crossed the Red Sea over the Gulf of Suez, okay? And they traveled there and there's a Mount Sinai, okay? A third view, um, and actually there is a movie, like a documentary called The Mountain of Fire um, that explains this view. Um, is a belief that Mount Sinai is actually in Saudi Arabia, okay? And in this view, the Israelites did not cross the Red Sea at the Gulf of, the, of Suez, okay, on the west side of the Sinai Peninsula, but that they were already in the Sinai Peninsula when they crossed the Red Sea. So what part of the Red Sea did they cross in that case? It was not the Gulf of Suez. It was the Gulf of Aqaba. This is the Gulf that separates the Sinai Peninsula from Saudi Arabia. This is that the view, okay? So different people have different opinions, all right, and we don't know exactly which is the correct one. There are kind of evidence for each one of these, and there's very various archaeological things that people can look to. Um, in that movie, The Mountain of Fire, actually, there's like a group of these researchers that somehow they 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 went to the location that they believed was um, this mountain in Saudi Arabia, and they had to sneak there to get there. And there's like this mountain that they found that had like a, a fence all the way around it and they looked up and they saw like the mountain was like black as though it had like been burned. Um, but if you're interested to learn more about that, um, you can get that movie, watch that movie, The Mountain of Fire. It's called The Mountain of Fire, The Search for the True Mount Sinai. And they, they'll look at like um, evidence in the water. So if I remember correctly, when I watched that movie, it was a long time ago, they, they found like different things in the water that they identified that it could have been potentially like chariot wheels. Um, where the Egyptians were uh, trying to pass through the Red Sea and then the sea engulfed them. And so all their chariots and everything 
uh, were, you know, left in the sea. Um, but there's other locations as well that they say there's archaeological evidence that it could be there. So, um, and then we really don't know for sure. Um, and, and it's not like, like you know, it, it, when you read it in the Bible, um, like, like you can interpret it in different ways, right? Again, the, the traditional view is that the Sinai Peninsula, the location of St. Catherine Monastery, that is the that that is the mountain there. But there's other people with different opinions. Number three, why did it upset Joseph when Jacob blessed Ephraim? And what did it mean when Jacob told Ephraim that he shall be greater? How was that played out in the Old Testament? Um, so actually, we just uh, we just uh, studied this in the Bible study last week um, in the book of Genesis. So um, this is in Genesis chapter 48. So what's happening in this chapter is um, Jacob uh, or J Joseph knows that Jacob is about to die. OK, and so he wants to take his sons. Ephraim and Manasseh to be blessed by Jacob before he dies. Okay, and 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 the typical um, you know practice uh, among the Jews was that the firstborn son, okay, is the one who receives like the greatest blessing because he is like he's the one with the birthright. He is the one to kind of like carry the mantle of the family moving forward. So in this case, Joseph he had two sons. Manasseh was the older son and uh, Ephraim was the younger son. So he brings both of the sons to Jacob, okay? Um, and he wants Jacob to bless Manasseh with his right hand and, he, and then to bless Ephraim with his left hand. The right hand meaning like the greater blessing from, the, from his right hand and the lesser blessing from his left hand. But Jacob, even though he was like going blind, but he, um, he, he, he put instead his right hand on Ephraim, the younger, and the left hand on Manasseh. So um, J Joseph was not pleased with this because the the custom was the elder son is the one who gets the blessing, right? It's not it's not it's not because Joseph didn't love his sons equally. It's because um, the the tradition was that the the oldest son is the one who gets the blessing, and that's what was in Joseph's mind all along. Okay, um, what was the reason that uh, that Jacob did this? So <clears throat> Jacob says to Joseph. When he sees that Joseph is not pleased, he says that actually Ephraim, the younger, is the one who is going to be the greater nation. He's the one who's going to become a greater people than Manasseh. And so this was a prophecy. And this is why Jacob blesses Ephraim more than Manasseh. What is the evidence that we have of this? So um, in, in the time of Moses, okay, uh, after Moses brings out the people, the Israelites from Egypt, he does a census, okay, um, about all of like the, the number of the people who are 20 years old and above who are able to go to war. And the, the number of people that's found in the tribe of Ephraim is 40,500, while those who are found in the tribe of Manasseh were 22,200. This is in Numbers chapter 1. So the, the nation of Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, was actually almost double the size of the tribe of Manasseh, Okay. Um, also, and we, we mentioned this in the Bible study, the, the tribe of Manasseh was divided, right? Half of the tribe uh, lived east of the Jordan and half of it lived west. So most of the tribes, the, the, you know, the promised land was west of the Jordan River, right? That's where the nation of Israel is. But some of the tribes, 
they dwelt to the to the east and in, in the case of the tribe of Manasseh half of it was in one location and half of it was on the other so because it was split like that with the Jordan River kind of separating the tribe it wasn't as strong because because the people were not together in one location um, also because of the part of the tribe that was living to the east of the um, Jordan they were exposed to all of like the pagan nations that were around them right like the Jordan River acted like as a natural border between Israel and all of those other nations but the tribe of Manasseh the part of it that was on the east of the Jordan they were in direct contact much more with all of these other people and so for them uh, they were they were much more affected by them right and so um, it led to them being kind of more susceptible to like pagan practices and idol worshiping and, and, and things like that. Um, finally, the tribe of Ephraim was um, considered to be so strong that when the, uh, when the kingdom of Israel later on, much later when, when after they enter the promised land and they have their, um, all their territories and they have kingdoms and so on, um, and, and the kingdom split, uh, the the northern part of Israel was actually sometimes be referred to as Ephraim, even though it was made up of 10 tribes. But because the tribe of Ephraim was so strong, they would refer to the whole kingdom as Ephraim, right? So, um, so there were a lot of reasons why in the future, right? Of course, Jacob, he saw this in prophecy. He didn't, this hadn't happened yet, um, where um, he, he saw that Ephraim was like a greater tribe. And so he gave the blessing to Ephraim with his right hand instead of, um, Manasseh, who was the older son. Number four. What does bless the crown of the year with your goodness, O Lord, mean? So um, in the in, there are different seasons in the church, and, and one of the seasons uh, of the church is separate, uh, celebrating the Coptic New Year, or we call it the Nairuz Feast, okay? This is um, celebrated in September. Um, September 11th is typically the first day of the Coptic New Year. And during that season um, that we are celebrating the Coptic New Year, um, in many of the prayers and responses in the liturgy, um, we, we, we say this, bless the crown of the year with your goodness. Okay. Uh, this is actually coming from Psalm 65, verse 11, which says, you crown the year with your goodness. Okay. So what does that mean? The crown of the year um, means like the head of the year or the top of the year. It's like the beginning of the year. So at the beginning of the year, we are asking God to like bless the whole year, bless the crown of the year, bless the beginning of the year um, with your goodness. So we're asking God essentially to bless, um, to bless the coming year. Number five, where Christ's entrance into Jerusalem and driving out the sellers from the temple on the same day. So this is referring to um, the, the Holy Week, okay? So we know that on Palm Sunday or Hosanna Sunday, uh, that the Lord entered into Jerusalem triumphantly riding on a donkey, right? And this is where um, the people were receiving him as a king and they put palm branches and clothing on the road and they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right, we celebrate this on Hosanna Sunday. Um, so that week, or th this this day, marks like the beginning of like the Holy Week. Okay, um, and so uh, the the one of the things that happened during this week 
is that he cleansed the temples. He would go to the, he went to the temple. He saw that people were using it as a marketplace and there were money changers and all of this business transactions going on. And so um, he was uh, very angry uh, with, with that. And he overthrew the table of the money changers and he you know, expelled the people who were buying and selling and so on. So the question is, is were, were they did they happen on the same day? So no, they did not happen on the same day. The entrance into Jerusalem happened on Sunday, right? And then the next day on Monday, this is where the cleansing of the temple happened. Okay, and, and you can see this in Mark chapter 11. So in the first 10 verses of Mark chapter 11, um, this, is this is describing the entrance of the Lord into Jerusalem. Okay, this is on Sunday. Then in verse 12, Mark 11, verse 12, it says, now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And then it describes the next thing that happened, which is now on Monday, which is the cursing of the fig tree. When the, when the Lord finds a, a tree, a fig tree that doesn't have any figs, and he curses the tree. Immediately after this, in verse 15, this is where the cleansing of the, of the temple happened. So at this point, we are already the next day, right? So it's, it's already Monday. So the entrance of the Lord into Jerusalem happened on uh, Sunday, and then the cleansing of the temple happened on Monday. Uh, as a side note, uh, and it's important to note this, the cleansing of the temple actually happened two different times in the scripture, right? If you read in the book of John, I believe it's chapter two, um, you read about, now as you remember in the, in the chapter two, this is the very beginning of the ministry of the Lord, right? So we're not, we're not talking about Holy Week at this point. Holy Week, this is described at the very end of the gospels, right? the entrance into Jerusalem, all that. This is right before the crucifixion. But in John chapter 2, this is at the beginning of the ministry of the Lord, okay? There is another scene where the Lord uh, enters uh, into the temple and he cleanses the temple from the money changers and so on. So actually, the, the cleansing of the temple happened two times. The first time, it happened at the beginning of the ministry of, of Christ. And then the second time it happened at the end, right before his crucifixion. So just to avoid confusion, that we see two different times where this happened. But here in the Holy Week, the entrance is on Sunday and the cleansing is on Monday. Number six. In Romans 12, verse 2, St. Paul says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How can we renew actively our minds? Um, the verse that came into my mind, uh, you know, that, that kind of speaks about this is in Philippians 4, verse 8, where St. Paul is speaking. He says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report. If there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, right? Our mind is like being pulled in every direction, right? The world is full of so much news, of so much entertainment, of so much culture, you know, of, of so many things that keeps our mind focused on the world, right? We focus so much on the, the education of the world, 
so much on the the culture of the world. We focus so much on the people of the world, on the way of the world, the system of the world. Where we focus so much on that, and 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 we 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 have to in some sense because we are living in the world and we have to be able to operate in the world, right? So we are always need to be mindful of the fact that we lift our minds from just the worldly things and we focus on the heavenly things, right? We, we remind ourselves that this world is not the whole thing. The, it's not the whole story. It's not the beginning and the end, right? This world is where we are currently living, but this world is not the true reality. This world is just like a, like a, like, like a temporary place that we are um, that operates by a certain set of rules and that those rules have been defined by man and those rules have been corrupted by sin. And this place that we live in is not heaven, nor is it our final home, right? So here when St. Paul is speaking about how we should conduct ourselves, what should we meditate on? What should we be thinking in our mind, right? Um, the idea that our minds are renewed is what keeps us kind of focusing on God and focusing on the eternal life, even though we are surrounded um, by kind of this temporary world that we are living in for so often. So for instance, what are some things that are noble and just and pure and lovely, you know, that we can be meditating on? Well, one thing that comes to mind is reading, right? Whenever we read, we're, we're, we're immersing our mind into, into something. Whether we're reading the news, we become more adept at understanding like current events and what people are saying and so on whether we are um, meditating on, um, you know, like, like uh, something that's cultural, something that's historical, something that's scientific. People who read in these various areas become experts in those areas, right? Because we are spending more and more time thinking about these things and learning about them. The same is true of the spiritual life. If we read about God, if we read spiritual books, if we read the writings of the church fathers, if we read the Bible, if we read all these things, then it, it, it kind of makes, makes us be able to be more focused on the things of God and renews our mind, that our mind focuses more and meditates on these things as opposed to just the things of the world. Uh, another way to renew our mind is to listen to sermons, you know, um, bringing uh, uh, kind of like the understanding and the knowledge and the spirituality that comes from listening to sermons and that are calls to action to us in order to, to live a certain way. It's also a way to renew our mind. Um, the people that we spend time with is another way to renew our mind. If I spend time with people who are very godless uh, and have nothing to do with God um, or even against God, I will find myself practicing like them, talking like them, thinking like them, and it, it corrupts my mind, actually darkens my mind. But if I spend time with people who are believers, who are doing godly activities, that we are serving God together, that we are talking about God together, that we are praising God together and doing those things, that actually is a way of me renewing my mind, right? Because I'm, all, I'm again, focusing on God and I'm doing it with other people as well. Prayer, right? That I'm actually speaking to God, right? And he is speaking to me. This is another way for me to renew my mind, that in prayer I am conversing with God who is the creator, right? And he, he, is, he is bringing me up, he's like elevating me up above this world to be contemplating and focusing on the eternal things rather than only on the earthly things. Any spiritual activity that, that I do, coming to church, you know, partaking of the sacraments, um, confessing my sins, all those things help to renew my mind, right? Um, so 
over time, as we are renewing our mind, the things that um, we begin to love, right, begins to change. This is now a transformation that's happened, right? You know, maybe this doesn't happen from reading one book or listening to one sermon or attending one liturgy. But when you put all of these together, okay, what begins to happen is it, it, it fortifies my mind to, to be more attracted to the things of God rather than the things of man. That the things that used to fascinate me about the world just seem less fascinating, less attractive, less um, glorious, right? You know, my goals, my desires, you know, I begin to um, hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves by, by my very nature, right? Because I've, I've been contemplating and meditating so much on the things of God that I begin to just naturally love those things, right? Because those are the things that I'm always thinking about. So this is the idea of being transformed by the renewing of the mind. The more that I am aware of heaven and the heavenly things, the more I'm transformed to become a heavenly being, right? That even though I am still living in the flesh, even though I'm still body and here living in this world, but I'm living as though I'm living in heaven because I'm only thinking and, and, and or primarily thinking about the heavenly things. So that's what it means to be renewed in our mind and to be transformed. <clears throat> Number seven. Does the Coptic Orthodox Church uh, believe in the concept of deification? So, yes, but we have to be clear on what it is that we mean, okay? Um, so, this is called theosis, right? This concept of deification is called theosis, and you can read about it in the second epistle of St. Peter. This is in 2 Peter 1, verse 4. It says, by which we have been given to us, sorry, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Okay. St. Athanasius, who wrote a very famous work called On the Incarnation, where he speaks about the incarnation of Christ. He says this, he says, for the son of God became man so that we might become God. Okay. Now we have to understand what that means. Okay. This is not saying that we are to become God himself. This is not saying that we are to become uh, like gods that are to be worshipped or that we have the essence of God. Okay. It's not like a literally becoming God. Because like when you use the word deification, it means to become deity. Right. And, and if you misunderstand what we mean by that, it almost sounds like we believe that we are going to become gods. Like actually the, for instance, the, the Mormons, this is what they believe. They believe that certain people who live rightly um, after they die, they become promoted and become literally gods of different planets, right? And they believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is simply the God of earth and that he used to be a man like us and he was promoted after his death to become a god of earth, okay? So we do not believe in any sense that we are going to become gods at the same level of God or anything like that, right? Or that we become gods of different parts of the universe or anything like that, okay? But we believe that we are attaining the characteristics of God, so both in his characteristics and also in unity with him. 
So, so we become Christ-like, right, through transformation, through growing and through the grace of the Holy Spirit working in us. And that ultimately our unity with God in heaven is what is bringing us this partaking of the divine nature, okay? So we will never be like him in his essence of who he is, but he is sharing himself with us. He is allowing us to be united with him in the sense that we are sharing is in his love, in his wisdom, in his knowledge, in his understanding. And so he, because he shares himself with us in that sense, we are being deified because we are now carrying the characteristics of God, that we are carrying the, the wisdom of God, all these things. But we will never attain to be God. We will never be like God in the sense that we, we will be have everything he has or, or do everything he can do or anything like that. This is more speaking about that our nature has changed to where we are we are in unity with the Lord, we are in unity with God, and we're becoming more and more and more like him all the time, and that our unity with him is so intimate, right, that we are one with him, right? The Lord, when he was speaking to the apostles, he was saying that we are to be one with him just as the Christ is one with the Father, right? This is the, the level of unity that God wants to have with us, okay? And this will be realized um, in heaven, okay? So, so, and this is what we mean when we say theosis, right? We are becoming more and more like God in his character and more and more like God in, in, in unity and unification with him. Number eight, how do we interpret 1 Corinthians 3.15? Specifically, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. I have heard it used as an argument for purgatory. So let's read this passage. I'm going to read from uh, verse 11 all the way through to verse 15 so we can get like a context as to what this is discussing. Okay. Um, so we start in verse 11. So St. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Right? The foundation of the whole church is built on Christ himself. He is the foundation. He is the cornerstone. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. So here he's, he's, he's giving two types of work, right? This is now the work of the believer, our works, right? Our response to Christ, right? The one who has laid this foundation. What do we build, right? Or the foundation that he has given us. What do we build? If I build with gold, silver, and precious stones, right? Like these are, these represent like the correct teachings, the correct principles, the right way of living, like the, 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 the obedience to God, okay? Then um, all of this as though like if, if, if it is tested by fire, Okay, it will not burn because gold, silver, and precious stones do not burn in fire. But if I build with wood, hay, and straw, okay, these represent like the vain teachings, the incorrect teachings, the wrong way of life, right? Then when the fire comes, it'll burn up the wood, hay, and straw. So, so the, the quality of my work in this sense is being revealed by fire. The fire comes and, and can burn up the wood, hay, and straw, but does not burn the gold, silver, and precious stones. Okay, so then it goes on and says, if anyone's work, which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward, meaning 
on judgment day, right? It's like our work will be tested, okay? And for 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 you know, if 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 the work is is made of gold, silver, or precious stone, it will survive the test of fire, and otherwise it will be burned. Okay. So then it goes on in here in verse fifteen, and says, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. So this is not referring to purgatory. Okay. Um, there are actually more than one interpretation for it. Okay. So one interpretation according to Ambrosiaster. So this is what he says. He says, to suffer loss is to endure reproof. For what person, when subjected to punishment, does not lose something thereby? Yet the person himself may be saved. His living soul will not perish in the same way that his erroneous ideas will. Even so, however, he may suffer punishments of fire. He will be saved only by being purified through fire. So according to this interpretation, okay, what it means is that um, someone who has the wrong teachings or the wrong way of life, like the wood, hay, and straw, okay, um, they will be rebuked because of their wrong teaching, okay, and they will suffer consequences. Suffer consequences. Those consequences are represented by the fire. Like, like I I receive consequences because I'm living in the wrong way and teaching the wrong things and so on, okay. But that same fire right, can be a source of purification and correction for me, right? Maybe like a, an example to think about is the example of the prodigal son. The prodigal son, he, he, he lived in the wrong way, okay? And so his work in that sense was burned with fire and it burned because there was, there was nothing good about his lifestyle. He took the inheritance of his father and he squandered it on wasteful and sinful living, okay? So in that sense, his work was like what? wood, hay, and straw, it was burned. And this burning of his uh, work, okay, resulted in suffering for him because he suffered from the fact that uh, because of his wrong decisions, he lost all that he had, okay? But, but the outcome of that fire, right, the outcome of that burning was that he kind of woke up to himself and decided to return again to his father, right? So, so there was a correction. The rebuke that God sent for him resulted in pain, but it also saved him, right? So in this sense, again, we'll read in verse 15, it says, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet is through fire. So if we use the example of the prodigal son, his work was burned, right? Because it was, it was wrong. He suffered loss, okay? But he himself was saved because it was through actually the, the negative consequences of his actions that he was saved okay so so in that sense god uses um the the fire okay not only to purify sorry not not only to test the quality of our work but also to purify us right so that if i am if i if my work is 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 uh is burned right then i i am suffering the consequences of that but that actually will lead me to repentance and lead me to life again Okay, so that's his interpretation, um, Ambrosiaster. Um, other people have given other interpretations as well. Uh, one interpretation is um, that someone who, um, like, is teaching the faith, and uh, and but the teaching was flawed, like they were trying to teach correctly, but the teaching was flawed, that God would not condemn uh, the teacher because they were sincere in trying to teach the truth. Um, that was one interpretation. Another interpretation 
is um, if, a, if a person is teaching the truth, but the followers, the people who are, are the students that are listening to this teacher um, are refused to follow the truth, then the students would be condemned, but the teacher himself would not be condemned. He would be saved. Um, but out of these three explanations, I feel like the first one, um, you know, is, is the most, uh, like, like explains it the best. I, I, I feel like the, the idea that, that the fire itself is kind of like might lead to loss, but also leads to salvation, right? Number nine, why do we get bad setbacks in our spiritual life after a long time of improvement? Sometimes these setbacks are worse than how we used to be before we attempted to live with God, which feels confusing sometimes. So we have to identify this, the spiritual life, right? What is the spiritual life? The spiritual life is a war. That's what it is. It's, it's, it's a war. It's not static. It's not something that, you know, you, 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 once you attain it, you, you just, you have attained it, right? It's a war. And just like in any war, there are battles and some, some battles you win and some battles you lose, right? Some battles you feel like you're victorious in them and other battles you feel like you have been destroyed in them. You have been, you have lost in them. And just like in a war, the tactics change, right? Because we have an enemy and the enemy is a very clever, crafty one. And he's very experienced and very powerful. And he's always looking to see what is the way that he will cause us to fall, right? So as circumstances change in life, he sees how he can use those circumstances against us. And he finds new opportunities to trick us, to lull us into false sense of security and so on. This is why even a person who, you know, um, maybe feels like they have reached a certain spiritual level and are, um, you know, are secure or they have, they have, you know, they have won or, you know, they, they, they feel like everything is going in the right direction, right? For the moment when we begin to think that everything is fine, that's when the fall will come, right? Because... We, we forget maybe that our enemy is as crafty and as powerful as he is, okay? Um, so because it's a war, it's always changing, right? And every time that maybe we attain some kind of a success, the devil might alter his strategy to try to bring us down, okay? So there, it will always be changing, number one. Number two, um, when, we speak, when we look at ourselves and we, we say, okay, uh, we're having a setback and we're worse than we used to be. We have to be very careful when we look at ourselves and we say we are worse than we used to be. Is it actually that we are worse than we used to be? Or is it that we are facing challenges that are more difficult and temptations that are more difficult and greater than we used to? You know, like as people live in their life, right, they get more burden, more responsibility, more busyness, more troubles, um, more difficulties, more temptations, um, you know, more, more stress. So, when you compare your life to the, you know, the, the, the amount of stress, temptations, burdens, and so on um, that are on you compared to before, do you find that it's less or the same, or maybe it's more, it's more, right? Maybe the reason that I'm falling now, whereas before I was not, is because the, the burden on me is more, the temptations are more, the struggle is more. Just like someone who goes to the gym to work out, you start out with lightweight, right? And you, you graduate from that to heavier weight, to heavier weight, to heavier weight. 
And in this way, you keep getting stronger. But if you stayed at that light weight the whole time, um, yeah, it feels easy, but you're also not growing. Okay. The same is true in the spiritual life. God allows us to experience more weight. He allows us to experience more difficulties so that that would produce in us greater faith and greater reliance on him and greater, you know, uh, understanding of the work of God in us and in our lives. So we shouldn't get discouraged when we look at ourselves and we see that things are more difficult now or I find myself like struggling more now than before. That doesn't automatically mean that there's something wrong with me, right? Maybe it means that my the temptations on me have increased and so I need to turn to God even more, right? We shouldn't be discouraged. The idea of the spiritual life is it's something that that is that the only way that we can succeed in it is through perseverance to the end. He who endures to the end will be saved, right? It is an endurance because it is difficult to the last day. It is difficult to the last moment. There will be no time where we can look and say, I have attained victory, right? The victory comes when we die. The victory has, does not come while we still live on the earth in the flesh. Because in, in every moment that we live on, on earth in the flesh, the devil still has the opportunities to fool us, to trick us, to tempt us, to bring us down, to, 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 to play with our thoughts, right? And we are always having to fight, okay? So because it's a war and it's dynamic and the devil is very crafty and God allows him to tempt us, this, this temptation is actually for, for us to grow, it is for us to, to kind of um, always get stronger, like our spiritual muscles keep increasing. So we shouldn't get discouraged, but at the same time, we shouldn't give up, right? Like we shouldn't just say, um, well, you know, things are more difficult now, so I can't do it. I'm just going to stop trying. No, God is calling us for greater warfare. He's calling us to fight more fiercely, right? And that he will give us the grace to do so. God is not telling us to do something that we cannot do. He says, I'm, I will give you all the grace that you need, the strength that you need in order to overcome, but you have to turn to me. Maybe in the situations that I'm dealing with now, I have to pray more than before. Maybe I have to, to, to involve myself in the life of God more than I used to, right? Because the, 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 the fighting is fiercer against me. And I realize more and more my need for God. I realize more and more my personal weaknesses. I realize more and more that I am in need because it is being revealed by the circumstances that I am in, right? It's not that I have changed. I was always like this, but I was never challenged as much as I am being challenged now. So it's, it's important for us to see that every setback, God is allowing for a reason, and he wants us to grow and to realize our weakness and to rely only on him. This is the last question for today. What does the verse in John 17, 19 mean? So um, the John 17, 18 and 19, it says this, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Okay. What does it mean when, when Christ says, I sanctify myself? Isn't Christ already sacred, sacred and sanctified? What does it mean for him to be sanctified? So here the word sanctified has the meaning of consecration, right? Consecration means to be set apart for a specific mission or task or role, right? The, the Lord's mission, his, his task was the salvation of the world. He came to earth to in, in, in the flesh 
so that he would be crucified for the salvation of the world. So here the Lord is praying to the Father, and he's speaking about this role of his. And he is saying that I, my life is completely dedicated and set apart for the mission of salvation, right? So I, when he says for their sakes, like for the sakes of the people, the apostles and the people, I sanctify myself. Like I am, I am 100% consecrated to this mission of salvation, right? That they also may be sanctified by the truth. Just as God is sanctified, just as Christ is sanctified for this mission, okay? He is giving his life for this purpose. So he also wants them to be sanctified, right? He wants them to be purified. And he wants them also to be sent out for the same mission of salvation. This is the apostles, you know, he, here in this, um, in, in, in John chapter 17, the Lord is praying to the Father in the presence of the apostles who are with him, right? So he's saying, as you, Father, sent me, the Son, into the world for the for the mission of salvation, I also am sending them into the world for the same mission. Just as you set me apart and consecrated me for the mission of salvation, so also I am sending them for the same mission of salvation. So this is what it means. The Son came to the earth so that we would be sanctified, that we would be saved, and he is doing this. This is his mission. This is his goal. This is what he um what, what he came to do. Okay. Uh, that's all the time that we have for today. Uh, let's just conclude in a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O God, for this day. Grant us, O Lord, your peace in all things and teach us to follow you. Teach us, O God, how to struggle against temptation and sin and to trust, O Lord, that your working of your grace in our lives is sufficient for everything that we need. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us as they are daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power and the glory forever and ever, amen. God bless you, have a good night.